This episode of the Trek Geeks podcast is brought to you by our brand new podcast, Talking Trek. That's right, Star Trek Discovery is coming soon, and we're proud to launch this very special companion podcast in May 2017. Join us every week as we examine and analyze every episode, character, story arc, and more from the brand new Star Trek series coming to CBS All Access this spring. For more information and to join our mailing list, please visit TalkingTrek.net. Hey there, this is Vic Mignogna, Captain James T. Kirk from Star Trek Continues, and you're listening to the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. It's the Trek Geeks Podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant, your independent Star Trek podcast. Welcome everyone to Trek Geeks. This is episode 90. And as we record this, it's the week of January 25th, 2017. Welcome aboard. I'm your co-host, Bill Smith. And well, joining me as he does this time every episode. Well, you know, today is a special day for our podcast. It was this day just a couple of years ago that we launched episode one. So you could say that my co-host has hit his terrible twos, and I imagine that they're pretty terrible. He's the very toddler-like Dan Davidson. Dan, show me how you can walk, buddy. I'm teething. (laughs) Happy birthday, man. Happy birthday, buddy. Two years of this wonderful journey. It has been great, and I'm looking forward to a lot more many years. It has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. We've had a great time, you know, getting to know so many people in in the in the commission of doing this podcast and, you know, uh, whether online or in person. And it's just been an amazing experience. And, and here's to 20 more, if oh. I can put up with you for that long. I, 20 more episodes or 20 more minutes? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about something interesting tonight, something we've been, you know, thinking about talking about for a while. And we, we kind of haven't given this series as much love as maybe we ought to have in the last two years. No, and a series that deserves love, and you know, once you you know, you really miss something once it's gone. And after that fourth season ended on Enterprise, uh, I really realized how well it was coming into its own, and we we got you know kind of short end of the stick. So we're going to talk about the first episode of Enterprise tonight, Broken Bow. Can't wait. Can't wait. You know, I would love to say I missed you when I was gone, but that would be a lie. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess you got faith of the heart. Whoa, I'm just going where my heart will take me. Oh, and that's taken me right to the contact information for this episode, Dan. Why don't you tell everybody how they can send you their subspace messages? Sure, absolutely. On Twitter, Facebook, and Skype. And now on Instagram, that's right, our handle is Trek Geeks. Uh, you can also send us an email at podcast at trekgeeks.com. And you can call us at 508-784-1701 and leave us a voicemail or... 
Go to speakpipe.com slash trekgeeks and do the same. Uh, also, as always, our official Facebook group, Camp Kittimer, is ready to take you on as a member. Uh, lots of great discussion with lots of great people. We got great admins over there, too. Uh, you're going to get early access to these here Trek Geeks podcasts uh, as a member of Camp Kittimer. So if you're interested in that, just go ahead on over to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer. And please remember that any comments or messages you leave us in any of these places may be used in a future episode. Bill, back to you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. You know, at some point you have to perfect like a Casey Kasem voice just to make Drosen happy. Okay. All right. I think that would be that would be great. I'll work you know, on that. It reminds me of a Frank Caliendo bit where he's doing uh, an imitation of Casey Kasem, and he's talking about how the long distance dedication, how it's usually the worst part <laughs> of the show Casey used to do. Yes. You know, and he starts off one like, "Dear Batman and Robin." You know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Mission. All right. Uh, I'm challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. All right. Mm-hmm. You know what can we do? It's you know we got to get got to get up that list of uh, the four hundred and what thirty seventh favorite podcast of his by now. Uh, that was yesterday. Oh, okay. Dan, it's time for the news from our good friends at treknews.net. Online at treknews.net. Something broke. (laughs) It's you, I think. (laughs) Yes. You're broken. I am broken, but I'm fixable. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that remains to be seen. Uh, Dan, first up in news, it seems like we're top-loaded with a lot of Discovery news today, but... um, Let's start with the one that interested us the most this week, and that is Star Trek Discovery has added a new cast member playing a familiar role. Oh, this was awesome. I was I was very excited to see this news. This was something that I don't think anybody expected. Uh, James Frain, who I believe you know from Orphan Black, if I recall correctly. That is correct, uh, as sir. As well as a lot of things that he has done. He's a very well-known British actor. He has been cast in Star Trek Discovery, and he is going to play... Sarek of Vulcan, Spock's father. That is big, big news, and I think he is going to fit that role perfectly. I couldn't agree more. I think it's great casting. He is such a wonderfully talented actor, and I can't wait to see what he brings to that role. I mean, obviously, Mark Leonard was... You know, uh, the standard bearer is Sarek. He was wonderful. And then Ben Cross in the J.J. Yes. movies was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I was very skeptical of Ben Cross at first, but he was really great. Yes. But uh, I think James Frayne is going to bring a new dimension to Sarek, and I really look forward to it. It's amazing. I don't know a lot about him. I've seen him in a couple of things. He was in Grimm, which is a favorite show of my wife and I's. He played uh, a very small role, and he was only in for a few episodes. But even those episodes he was in, he really carried the scenes. Um, so it's going to be great to see him. I've seen a few mock-ups of what he would look like as Sarek. And if it's anything like these mock-ups, it's going to look pretty kick-ass. He's one of those guys that you recognize from being in a bunch of stuff. It seems like the guy's constantly working. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, yeah, him. Yeah. And that's who he is. And I can only hope that this brings him some of the notoriety he deserves because he's a, he's a wonderful actor. Yes. Dan, in other Discovery news, it looks like um, there's going to be another delay. 
Yeah, this is, you know, not too upset over it. If they're going to delay it for the right reasons, I don't have a problem. But they have um, come out with an announcement that uh, they are delaying the uh, premiere. They have not given a date, which I find interesting. Um, It was originally supposed to be in May, but they have pushed it off. Like I said, if they're pushing it off for the right reasons and it's so that the show is as perfect as it can be, I am 100% cool with it. I have to agree with you. You know, I've seen this incorrectly reported by sites like Engadget and others that Discovery has been delayed indefinitely, and that's not the case. Not at all. They just are delaying the premiere, and they have not announced the new date. That does not mean it's delayed indefinitely. It just means they haven't announced the new date. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm okay with it. Um, I, you know, it's, I, I know that... Well, obviously, uh, we'll talk about that in our next story. We know that things are well in hand, Yes, um, and I, I I feel good about it. You know, I have a feeling it'll probably premiere sometime summer, maybe late summer. Um, but that's that's totally a guess. I have nothing to base that on. I would be very okay with that because selfishly, looking at the calendar, if it had premiered in May at thirteen episodes, thirteen week arc, it was quite possible that the finale could have been taking place during STLV, and that would have made it very difficult to be able to watch the show and be able to dissect it for our uh, our new podcast. But at the same time, it would have been great to watch it with all of our Trek family at Vegas. But I'm, I'm okay with this. Uh, I think it'll be good if it does come out, like you said, in late summer. I think that would be cool. I think, it, I think it'll be great. But you know, let's dovetail into our next story, of course. Um, Dan, it appears that filming did indeed start today on Star Trek Discovery up in Toronto, and that was confirmed by a, a particular cast member. Yeah, very, very cool news. Today, as we record, it is January 24th. Um, so we did get uh, confirmation from Doug Jones in one of his tweets that they have left Dry Dock and they are uh, they are filming. As of today, it has started. So I am just praying that there are little snippets that are going to start being left here and there, uh, maybe set pictures or, or something but folks it's happened it is it is really going on right now and that is extremely exciting as of today discovery is filming it's it's a it's wonderful it's amazing you know we wish the cast and crew and the writing staff nothing but the best as filming begins we can't wait to see what they're putting together for us it's gonna be awesome And then lastly in news, I feel like we should talk about this a little bit, but we're going to devote an entire episode to this next week. Um, The lawsuit versus Actionor Productions um, that was brought forth by CBS and Paramount Pictures has been settled. Yeah, this came out of, this was kind of a surprise. We know that the trial date was coming up. I think it's a week from today is when it was supposed to open if they had not reached a settlement. Uh, But there was a a statement made that they did reach uh, an agreement. Uh, they settled the copyright lawsuit. Um, CBS and Paramount claim that Alec Peters had broken copyright law by using items in the uni- in the Star Trek universe. Um, I don't know if we want to get into the whole uh, statement itself now, but uh, it has been settled, and I think it's really up in the air as to what's going to be happening next. It's really unclear. It really is. I mean, we know from the terms of the settlement that they must adhere to the fan film guidelines. Um, which would mean they could make no more than two 15-minute episodes, which mm-hmm. is much different than a full-length feature film at 90 minutes. And it's not supposed to be Star Trek related in any way. Right. So we will talk about that at length next week, and we'll get into more about next week's episode at the end of this episode. Fair enough? I still want my money back. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, I would. I would love a solid gold toilet too, and nothing. Neither of those is happening. As I can probably, yeah. <laughs> Well, Dan, if you'll remember, back in, was it 2001? We were treated to the premiere of a brand new live action Star Trek series. And it was to be called Enterprise. So like mm. without the name Star Trek. Right. And that was a bit of an adjustment for all of us. And we all sat down to watch it. And I think that it was a, an interesting experience And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight as we reminisce about Broken Bow, the pilot episode of the aforementioned fifth live action Star Trek series. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Show's over. Thank you, everybody. All right. Good night. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about that in a while. It it was just Enterprise. Uh, There were a lot of things, a lot of questions, I think, as, as it was getting set to premiere. I was very excited for some of the cast announcements, especially Scott. Um, I thought that he was going to make a great captain. Um, but yeah, uh, it had been a while. How many, how long had it been between Voyager and Enterprise? I'm trying to think off the top of my head here. Months, wasn't it? Oh, it was only months? Okay. All right. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was longer. Months. Maybe I'm thinking because it's been so long between uh, series now that it's kind of bleeding together. Yeah, Voyager wrapped in the in the, the late spring, early summer of ninety. Oh, sorry, two thousand one. And uh, as I recall, I think it was Bob Picardo was telling us in you know, in Vegas when he was on the stage at, at that convention that you know Kate gave her last lines you know on the bridge is Janeway, and they didn't even wait. They started tearing down the set like right away. Ah, okay. Because they had to in order to stay on time That's to deliver right. Enterprise that that coming fall. Gotcha, gotcha. So, Dan, we posed the question to everybody in Camp Kittimer, our official Facebook group. Mm-hmm. You know, how would they rate the pilot episode, Broken Bow? And, you know, we gave it to a, a range from one to five stars, with five being awesome and one being terrible. And the majority of respondents said that Broken Bow is a four-star episode, a good, solid start. And I think that kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, it didn't surprise me. I would have, um, said that it was at least three and a half stars, maybe four stars. When you look at all of the other ones, other pilots, I mean, we talked about Encounter at Farpoint. Um, and I think if you use that as a base, there's really nowhere to go but up. Um, although DS9 is, is probably considered the best. Um, so then you have Voyager TOS, uh, to, to go as your as your guide, so I I I would have to say four stars as well. I, uh, um, yeah, four stars, solid, good, solid start for for premiere with new cast and new storyline. I would have to agree too. It's interesting as I look at the ratings. Um, you know, uh, nobody thought that it was a one star episode unanimously. Nobody voted for that. Mm-hmm. A couple of people thought it was two stars. Uh, a few people thought it was five stars. But the majority of votes were either four stars or three stars. And I think that that says a lot about it. Looking at some of the comments, they tend to agree with you, the best pilot right after Emissary. Um, That seems to be a recurring theme. Um, uh, People liked how it established, you know, uh, the Starfleet's mission. It, uh, 
there were a few people too who thought it was closer to a three five like you did. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, I have to agree with everybody in Camp Kittimer. It's it's a very solid story. Yes, it is. There are some now. Now, with that being said, there are some things that are a little bit you know raise your eyebrow, which we'll get into later. But all in all, a very solid episode. And when you look at the chart, I'm not sure if you said this this exactly, but it was by more than a two to one ratio, four to three stars. I mean, uh, it was, yes. it was a, there was a, a lot, the vast majority of people said four stars. So that was, that was interesting. That's a, that's a really great point. I didn't bring that up and thank you for doing so. It's overwhelmingly very positively received by the campers in Camp Kittimer. Um, and, and by us too. I mean, this is a, an episode that I just rewatched in, in the commission of, of preparing for this podcast. And I forgot it was as good as it was. Yeah, uh, I did the same. Um, I had watched it oh, maybe six or seven months ago, uh, and then watched it again this week in preparation for for the podcast tonight. And it's very it's one that you can sit and watch and not get bored um, or be like, okay, more than you know, okay, let's get to the next scene. It was it was good. It was a good introduction of all the characters. Some good points, some bad points, but uh, yeah, it's very enjoyable. Now, we're not going to go through and do a, a formalized recap because you know, we, we get the sense that everybody knows what Broken Bow is about. I mean, it's the first episode of, of the series. It's about the first starship named Enterprise, you know, and their first mission and how we eventually get out into space. So we'll assume that everybody has seen it. If you haven't, um, really, it's it's just about everywhere. You can stream it on Netflix. You can stream it on CBS All Access. Mm-hmm. You know, check it out. We think you'll truly enjoy it. But let's talk about some of the premises for this episode. Specifically, how did you feel when they announced it was going to be a prequel and not a post-Voyager series? It was one that I was not sure about, um, to be perfectly honest. This was the first real retcon that we were going to be hit with in the Star Trek universe, if I remember correctly. And I know that we uh, we can't uh, be afraid of the wind, right, Bill? Uh, but um, <clears throat> it was it was a little it was a little scary. We're talking about a history that people are so focused on and the slightest little mistake is going to just cause an explosion of outrage. Um, and this was kind of, you know, really letting that possibility happen when you're talking about an area of time that has already taken place in the Star Trek universe. I remember some comments on some various discussion boards, like when, uh, when Trek web was still active and, and some sites like that where people were as, as fired up about there being a, a retcon series, uh, as you would imagine, you know, as they were about as excited as they were for some people are for discovery, if that makes, you know, any, any sense, which is sure. to say they weren't excited at all. Mm-hmm. I have to admit that I was in that same boat for a time, especially since we had just come off of the first star Wars prequel a couple of years before that. Oh, R- Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I'm thinking to myself, Lucas failed miserably with The Phantom Menace. Why do we want a prequel series? Why are we going backward to tell the story of the future? And, you know, it it made it really hard for me to want to invest myself in the series. And then they made the announcement of who was going to be the captain. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Scott Mm -hmm. Bakula. And that kind of was a... Yeah, Quantum Leap, uh, a whole host of things. That became a game changer for me. I'm not going to lie. It did for me, too. Like I said a few minutes ago, when when he was cast as the captain, I was really intrigued uh, because I did uh, 
uh, I did watch Quantum Leap, not religiously, but I did watch it quite a bit, and um, I did like him. Uh, so that was great. And of course, uh, Jolene Blaylock uh, being cast as Paul was very intriguing. Now, I will say, you know, as a younger guy, I was like, oh, wow, Jolene Blaylock's going to be on Star Trek. That was pretty cool. That was, I mean, because I'd seen uh, modeling uh, pictures of her. So that was exciting. Um, a lot of the rest of the cast, though, not really well known, maybe except for maybe John Billingsley, um, but the rest of them for me, I was not familiar with at all. What about you? I the Bacula was the only person that I had ever heard of in the cast. Oh, okay, I had seen Billingsley and some other things here and there, mm-hmm. but he was another one of those guys, like we were talking about with James Frain. Yes, just uh, earlier in the in the news segment, mm-hmm. you know, you would see John Billingsley and things, and go, "Oh yeah, I've seen that guy and stuff." Right, but everybody else, I had not seen in anything. Okay, um, I I do like the chemistry between the cast. You know, there's a great scene toward the beginning of a Broken Bow where they're getting ready to launch the NX-01, and Admiral Forrest is standing behind the podium, and they're talking about jo- uh, Jonathan Archer's father Henry and how he developed the Warp Five engine and. Mm-hmm. You, know, you see the crew up there, you know, behind everybody on that that balcony or that race platform, and they're all just sort of standing there, and they look like a crew that works together. They act like a crew, right? And I got that sense right away that they were all vested in this, and it, there was believability right off the bat for me. Well, the scene that always that scene strikes me as funny a little bit because as as uh, the admiral is talking about the crew and he looks up and is talking about Archer's father, you just see Scott's chest puff out just a little bit. She's standing there with those broad shoulders. I always found that quite funny. Let's, uh, let me talk about Let me talk about another aspect of that scene really quickly is the okay. video mm. of Zephram Cochran. Yep. So clearly, well, they, they got to James Cromwell back to play Cochran, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. He's cleaned up his act. He doesn't look like a drunk anymore. Right. But he, in his speech, you know, announcing the dedication of the Warp 5 complex, references all of the things that Shatner says in the preamble to the original series. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And when I heard that the first time, I thought it was a little corny, but now I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. Oh, I never thought that. I always like, oh my God, that's where it came from. <laughs> I always thought that was really cool. Yeah. Really? That surprises <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, I always did. When they did it, I was, I mean, of course, when it's th- those type of things, you're sitting there watching the episode and you're excited because it's the first. And then... Cochran comes on screen and it's Cromwell and that's one of those freak out moments. We're like, oh my God, they brought him back. And then when he starts the speech, I I lost it. I was I was I remember vividly that I was like, that is awesome. I loved it. How did you feel when you realized that the ship was going to have a Vulcan first officer and that they made her a member of you know the the Vulcan you know, science committee or whatever they're called? It's mm-hmm. escaping me right off the top of my head. I'm sure somebody will email me and tell me I'm wrong. Um, instead of putting her in Starfleet so that Spock could still be the first Vulcan in Starfleet. I thought at the time I didn't like it because of that reason. I think it was just semantics. Spock was the first science officer is what, is what I always had thought in my head. Um, so for them to do it in a way that kind of made it, quote unquote, correct was a cop out to me. Yeah, I thought that too. Um, although I do, this is not to take anything away from Jolene, who mm-hmm. is wonderful as to Paul. We've talked about on this the show before how we really think that she's underappreciated as to Paul, and she brought a lot to that role and adding to Vulcan lore, which I thought was great. Yeah, I, I we've talked before. Sometimes I had problems with how she and others portrayed Vulcans in Enterprise, um, but 
I think I started to just as just this week as I was watching it started to reappreciate what she brings to it. Now I'm probably going to go back and watch the entire series at this point again, and I I I can pretty much guarantee you that those negative thoughts that I have had in the past will probably be somewhat subdued after I watch it again. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Yeah. Um, going through the rest of the characters, obviously we've got Jonathan Archer as captain. We've got T'Pol as the first officer, which I still think is kind of weird because she's not in Starfleet. Mm-hmm. The fact that you know he made her that because the Vulcans gave us star charts yes. seems like a stretch to me. It does. Yeah, we're not You've that got, bad. No, no, no. We're we're still in our infancy, but come on. <laughs> we've got uh, Trip Tucker as the engineer. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Whoa. Hey. <laughs> um. We've got uh, Malcolm Reed as the weapons officer, the mm. tactical officer, whatever you want to call it. You've got um, Hoshi Sato as the communication specialist. You've got Phlox as the doctor. You've got Travis Mayweather as the helmsman. Interesting that they went back to the single station helm as opposed to the helm and navigator in TOS. That was yeah. one of the first things I noticed. And when I look at the bridge of the NX-01, it kind of reminds me of the design for the Defiant Bridge. Yes. Um, I always have thought that the bridge on the NX-01 is very cramped. Uh, very cramped, very stuck together, uh, kind of clunky. Um, I'm not a big fan of that kind of briefing table in the back. Um, but at the same time, this is a this is a brand new starship, and uh, there were bound to be things that we saw that we didn't see before that we may or may not have liked. Well, I think but, there are elements elements of it they took from sort of like modern day ships to some example mm-hmm, like that sort of table yeah yeah well and even the defiant had that space behind the captain's chair where sometimes you would see people if yeah you think about but, it. but for for me I don't know why but that that briefing table kind of I think maybe because I was used to the briefing room on the Enterprise D which was gigantic or the enterprise as well but just having this little table they didn't even have their own little room to go in and talk in even uh voyager had its own briefing room of course again way in the future so things evolve well, as did the original series true yeah so let's talk a little bit about the nx01 since mm. we've you know just talked about the bridge you know one of my fears when they announced that it would be a prequel was that it might look more futuristic than the series it's supposed to serve as a prequel to. Because, you know, you remember in, in TOS, there's a lot of uh, jelly buttons. Yes. You know, there's not a lot of people looking at screens. They press these light-up glowy things on the board, and somehow they get an indicator off it because none of them are labeled. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the Enterprise NX-01 had what looked like flat panel display monitors, which were very readable. So do you think that they achieved a, a balance in looking futuristic, but trying not to look more futuristic than TOS? To be blunt, no. I was not happy with how NX-01 looked. Now, let me, let me also preface that with, I love the ship now. I love the way it looks. But keeping if I have to look at it as this took place before TOS, what they gave us was way too futuristic in my mind, based on what we're used to with the original 1701. Yes. The outer hull is way too sleek. It's shiny. It's The nacelles are gorgeously lit. Um, every aspect of it, it's got great curves, and it all flows together on the bridge and everywhere throughout the ship. Like you talked about, there are touch panels, and there are screens that you can read, and the bio uh, screens in sickbay. You just had the 
the up and down arrows with the red beepy dots in sick bay on in <laughs> on the original series i thought it was way too futuristic for something that took place before the original series and that did bother me for a while they did have some aspects that were trying to keep in line with the original series like the screen that T'Pol would look through was very similar to what spock used and i liked that and there were some push buttons here and there but for me i thought it was way too futuristic looking I thought it needed more dials yes, mm-hmm. as opposed to touch screens. And uh, they should have had some kind of display readout, obviously. But um, at, at the time, you know, flat panel displays were just coming into the norm in homes and offices. Right. So it to me, it didn't look that – it looked it looked more commonplace to, to today rather than it did futuristic, if that right. makes sense. Now, there are some aspects that I did like about it. We talked about it a few minutes ago, how like the bridge was kind of cramped and you think of submarines. That mm-hmm. was also the case – like for the captain's quarters, very small, not anything like you would expect for a captain, but submarine reminding me, you had to like step over a platform to get into his quarters when the door opened, if I remember correctly. A lot of things on his desk did have push buttons, but there were um, elsewhere, I thought the ship looked way too futuristic. Now, I have to say, in hindsight, I do love the NX-01 design. Me too. You know, I, yep. I think it looks it, it looks like it could be a precursor to the original series and and the NCC one seven zero one that we love so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like what they would have done as a refit, you know, for season five had it gone that far because it would have added the secondary hull right. to make it a little more like a starship. But looking at it now, I almost feel conflicted because at the time I don't know that I would have liked that as much yeah it's funny how I can have the feeling that I have and had in regards to it looking way too futuristic but love it as much as I do and it's funny that we're talking about it right now because no word of a lie just yesterday I got the NX-01 in Star Trek timelines and it's now my ship that I have on everywhere (laughs) (laughs) and it looks it looks gorgeous it really looks good that's awesome. Yeah. So as we look at the story for Broken Bow, there are some really fascinating elements to it and some other things that kind of make me at least scratch my head. So I'm going to start off with the introduction of the Klingons. Mm-hmm. We'll sort of take it piece by piece. Okay. I thought that the beginning of Broken Bow does a great job of establishing how we met the Klingons, but... It seemed very counter to me to what Picard said in the TNG episode, First Contact. Again, not the movie First Contact, the episode. Right. Where he said that First Contact with the Klingons was supposed to have been disastrous, to paraphrase. This did not look very disastrous to me. No, it didn't. And that's where the whole retcon thing comes into play. And you really got to scratch your head and wonder, did they look at everything they should have when they wrote this? You know, maybe because of what happened and and the mission being launched early and the, you know, the guy shot a Klingon for the first time he sees one, maybe that was considered quote-unquote disastrous, but not when you're talking about Starfleet, I wouldn't think. No, I agree, especially when we get him all the way to the Klingon homeworld, and it doesn't look like a disaster. Yes, the Klingon says something to Archer that Hoshi didn't translate because he you know, said he wouldn't want to know. Yeah, but know. there was nothing disastrous. It didn't plunge us into war or conflict. Right. Ideally, the Klingons got what they were looking for, which was the information Klang had. Exactly. I, li- I did like the way that they had that information in him. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool, and I thought it was very futuristic, something that would make sense. It would explain why the Suliban couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that takes me to my next point: is what did you think of the Suliban as as a race and and how they were introduced? Well, we've talked about the Suliban before. I'm not a huge fan of the Suliban. I don't like the way they look. I think I've I've described it in the past as they look like the 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 scummy lair and like swamps that like greeny gooky. <laughs> that's what they remind me of. Um, I don't. I've never really been able to appreciate the Suliban because, unfortunately, I think for the most part, all through the series, there's too many mysteries about them to really grasp onto them and like them or dislike them. I should say too. Um, it's tough. I don't. I, I. If I was, if I had to decide what I thought about them just based on this episode, I don't like them. I think the pod ships are a little weird, and and the there these ones are genetically engineered. They made that very clear that this group that we keep saying are, but that makes it sound like there are some that aren't. So is it kind of like humans with Khan, where some were and some weren't? Where are the ones that aren't uh, genetically engineered, so on and so forth. Interesting. I hadn't considered that part of it, and that's a really great point. At what point do they get to be the benefactors of this? These modifications. Mm-hmm. You know, and and who who gets that privilege or honor? Or some is of the modifications, were, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Now, some of these modifications are pretty cool, but at the same time, they I think that some of the modifications, like the hands twisting and being able to flatten themselves, made it kind of just convenient for the script. Without a doubt. Yeah. Now we know people who hate the Suliban, like with a passion. Mm-hmm. I personally really don't feel that way about them. I think they're okay as a race. Yes, I understand that we never hear about them again after Enterprise. I get it. But I think they're interesting enough as a foil to Starfleet that it creates some the possibility for some interesting storylines. Now, one of the ones that people dislike the most is the concept of the temporal Cold War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, that sounded very judgmental. <laughs> Wow, all right, go ahead, unload. <laughs> no, no, I want to hear you first. <laughs> no, no, I was unpack that thought. I, I hated the idea of the Temporal Cold War. I thought it was so confusing and it continued to be more confusing the more they talked about it and the more they had episodes about it as the series progressed. And I think they started digging themselves too deep a hole to get out of it in a way that made sense. And it started right at the beginning with episode number 1. See, I loved the idea of the Temporal Cold War. I just wish that they had treated it the right way. Now, I understand that they had to tell some of these stories to establish this as, you know, Star Trek, even if it wasn't Star Trek in name, you know, and and to, to get these people on their journey and to iron out some of these character details. But I loved the concept of a Temporal Cold War because it was so much different than uh, the Klingons don't like us or the Romulans don't like us or the Cardassians don't like us. I, I thought it added some depth and texture and, and provided the opportunity for some really cool time travel type opportunities. I I can give you that. But at the same time, if you're going to have a Temporal Cold War, I think that they did it in a way in this show that was, it made it way too difficult. If I was running a Temporal Cold War, I would go back in time to the exact point that I wanted to make a change, not have to worry about chasing down this Klingon so that I could get, so I could prevent him from getting the information to the High Council. I would go directly to the point where he didn't even live to get the information. It seemed that there was too many things that could go wrong with the way the temporal cold war was played out in this series. Now, 
that's to make episodes and to keep people involved in it. But at the same time, if I'm looking at the logistics of time travel, it seems that they did things way too difficult instead of just going right to where they needed to go. No, I agree with that. I think they made it far too complex for the average viewer to watch on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. They wanted the show to be episodic, yet they tried to build in mini arcs with the Sulaban and the Temporal Cold War. And I think by the time they got to season three with the Zindi, it was like, screw it, let's just do a season-long arc. And then by that point, the storyline with the Sulaban and the Temporal Cold War suffered, I think. Yeah, I agree. So... I think that there were a lot of missed opportunities with the Temporal Cold War. I think that they, I don't, I don't think that they devoted themselves to it the way they should have to make the storyline work personally. Although I, I have to admit, I, I still do really like the idea. I just want to find out who the hell Future Man was. <laughs> well, but Braga, Brandon Braga sort of spilled that a year ago on Twitter or, or something like that was if they had made it to season five or yes. later. They were going to re- reveal that Future Man was essentially Archer. Which makes me, my head spin around in like multiple circles because that would like completely freak me out if they were able to do that and explain it. That would have been the best cliffhanger. Oh, he comes stepping out of that machine thing that is yeah. all like, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, th- that is one of the, the big things that, that I, I wish had happened in the course of Enterprise. So, but, you know, they do introduce Future Man, they do introduce that weird room, and I got to admit that that whole delayed reaction, you know, time, temporal room, really messed with me in 2001 when I was watching that. I I thought it was very distracting. It was distracting, but I also liked it. I found it also convenient that it was doing that so that Archer wouldn't get shot in the chest because he was able to see where the beam of the phaser was going to go. Right. (laughs) But it was was cool. It looked a little matrixy when he dodged it. Very much so. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, in hindsight, uh, may not have been the best decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, th- those are some of the, the elements of the story. We know it's their first mission. We know that their job is to get Clang back to the Klingon homeworld. Um, let's talk about some elements of the episode that we either really liked or really disliked. And I'm going to go first. Okay. And I'm going to get this one out of the way. And uh, I'm going to bring up the decontamination scene first. Okay. With Trip and T'Pol. Um, it, it, I think that it really insulted the viewers into thinking that it was a really, you know, a scene with some weight to it because it's not. And all it was designed to do was to show Trip and T'Pol in their underwear. Yep. And I, 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 I I'm still insulted by the scene to this day. It was an over-sexualization, and uh, we certainly didn't need it. No, we didn't need it, but I will say this. I don't have a problem with it. Um, I agree with everything you said about it, though. Does that make sense? It's like yeah, uh, absolutely. I don't. I don't have a problem with that one nearly as much as the problem uh, of as the scene in in um, Star Trek in the Darkness. That was totally not needed at all. Right. That was done because she's a beautiful actress. This, that, and the other thing. This scene doesn't bother me. Yeah, it shows skin and 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 they're in their under- underwear and everything. But you also have to think it was just not too too um, much time prior to that where they brought Seven of Nine and Voyager, mm-hmm. and they're they're. They're focusing, bringing in young viewers to the show, maybe young male viewers, so they and young female viewers, and and they want to catch your attention. 
that was just a marketing ploy in my mind. It was it was a minute and a half of what you said, useless dialogue that didn't mean anything. That were just sitting there, you know, complaining back and forth to each other, or or Trip was complaining. But it is what it is. It continued. They kind of took advantage of Jolene, I think, in several episodes um, uh, with her physique. Unfortunately, I said it before, that's the way television and film Hollywood works these days. It's not going to change as much as we may want it to or as much as people may not want it to. It's just the way it is. I know people are going to be upset about it. I didn't have a problem with it. It, was, it is what it was. The thing that bothers me the most about that scene is you can tell it was probably a little cold on set that day, if you catch my meaning. <laughs> yes, I do. And, and, and you that, think that they didn't want that to happen also, though? They absolutely wanted it to happen, and absolutely. that's why I have a problem with the scene. Yeah. So that's all I really want to say about decontamination. You make some great points. I mean, I'm not necessarily offended by it as much as I am as a viewer, insulted by them trying to assume we're dumb. You know what I would love to find out, and we never will, unless there's an art, an interview out there. I'd like to hear what Jolene thought of it. Um, I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah. Yep. Unfortunate. So, um, what about you? What, what's something you really enjoyed or, or didn't enjoy about Broken Bow? Very small thing, but I loved the nod to Ron Moore at the, in this episode because the farmer who shot the Klingon at the very beginning of the episode, his name was Moore, and I thought that was a great. Um, you know, call out uh, to Ron Moore for all the work that he's done in Star Trek over the years. I agree with you. I also like the nods to uh, to Shatner and Nimoy and and Kelly with the uh, the admirals in the first scene at Starfleet. Mm-hmm. And you've got Admiral Forrest, which is a nod to Forrest Kelly. You've yes. got uh, uh, Admiral uh, was it Admiral Leonard and Admiral Williams. I believe so. Yeah, <laughs> or so. whatever their ranks were, because <laughs> um, I think one of the guys wasn't an admiral, but whatever. Um, I thought those were nice nods, too. There were lots of nice little Easter eggs yes. in Broken Bow, which I really respected. Yep. Um, I'm going to talk about something that I didn't like in this episode. Yeah. And I've, I've talked about it before. In this episode especially, and I'm going to be blunt, the Vulcans are dicks in this episode. Yes. It's, it's, you, it, there's no other way to say it. They are supposed to be non-emotional and logical, and they are just complete jerks, especially in that scene at the hospital when they're talking to Forrest and Archer. Not so much to Paul. She doesn't really say much in that, but and not so much Saval either. It's the other ones, and it, it, I just wanted to punch them in their pointed-eared face. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's be honest, though, because Saval does raise his voice. He does, which yes. Which is very unvulcan like mm-hmm. You know, I think one of my problems with the characterization of Vulcans throughout the run of Enterprise is that they are portrayed as jerks. Yeah. You know, yep. they are wanting to hold humans back. You know, the, the whole Vulcan arc series, you know, where, uh, where obviously where Morehouse was, was an extra, um, you know, it, it depicts Vulcans as uh, really not a, a nice race. No, not at and all. It's, it's contrary to what we learn in TOS. They try to bridge some of that by introducing the mind melds and you know, we get introduced to, um, to, to pow, Mm-hmm. In the Vulcan arc and, and that whole way of lo, uh, line of thought with Surak. And uh, I don't think it goes far enough to redeeming what we know and believe Vulcans to be. You got to wonder if, if as they went along, they realized that they were doing it badly and wanted to try to correct it. 
Uh, because I'll tell you, it's one thing to be logical and non-emotional. It's another thing to be overly negative, which is what they always seem to be, whatever scene they're in. They're very full of themselves. I can remember a couple of episodes, the guy who played a president, um, uh, on 24 played a Vulcan captain in one episode in season three, I think complete stuffed shirt full of himself. And he's a Vulcan. It made no sense to me. I, um, I don't want to sound like, you know, we're, we're bashing this episode. No, so I'm no, going to no, bring no. up, I'm going to bring up one of the thing that I wish had been a little different about broken bow. And then I'm going to bring up a couple of things. I really, truly love about the show. Okay. I feel like the Klingons were wasted in this episode. It could have been any race that had the information the Sulabans wanted. I think they only chose the Klingons because people knew Klingons. Yes, I think I think you're 100% correct because it did not have to be. They could have introduced them in a very different way, in a much more um, explosive way, so to speak. But they did it right at the beginning to catch the, the the Trek fans' attention by bringing in a race that they knew about. And yeah, basically, he's in the very beginning of the episode, and they're in the end of the episode. And maybe a smattering of three to four seconds uh, of a couple scenes through throughout the uh, the the first episode. Yeah, complete waste. I think it would have been better to have the Tellarites, quite frankly. That would have been great. I was going to say the Endorians, but we get a great dose of them later on. The Tellarites seem to be a wasted race also because you never see them. Well, that's it. I mean, they're a founding member of the Federation. Yeah. You know, uh, we don't see them enough in Enterprise. You see them some, yeah. but not to the extent that I would expect if they're going to be a, a major player later on down the road. Agreed. So um, one of the things I really love about Broken Bow and, and you know, the first, say, sort of half season of Enterprise is that there's not the level of confidence that you see in other Trek series. Because this is the first time humans have done this. Mm-hmm. You know, especially Hoshi. I love the fact that she is filled with doubt and anxiety and doesn't really think she should be there necessarily as much as she knows that Archer needs her. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why Hoshi's probably one of my favorite characters throughout Enterprise is because she is us to some extent. Oh, absolutely. 100%. The one thing I didn't like, and you, you talked about it a little while ago, is I can't believe that, you know, they may be friends and everything like that, but... Archer asked what the Klingon said. The captain of the ship, her superior officer said, what did he say? And her response was, you don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that strikes me as a little bit, uh, no, you, I, I want to know for one. So your captain wants to know. So what was it? <laughs> Especially if it was insulting. I exactly. Mean, I, just, yeah. I want to know that right off the bat. Um, <laughs> you know, Phlox obviously is very confident because he's dealt with other alien cultures. But... You know, everybody else to Paul has a certain confidence because she has that lack of emotion, but nobody else on board Enterprise knows what to expect. You figure mm-hmm. Travis was a boomer and he's seen a little bit more of space. Um, but everybody else is out there for the first time. Right. You know, like in the next episode, you know, Trip is is bummed because he doesn't get to go to the derelict ship and find out what's going on. Exactly. You know, it's like, you say, I, I want to explore. Well, and that's really what you get the sense that they're doing. There's that sense of exploration. There's that sense of hope and optimism and enterprise. And after Voyager, I think it was a really refreshing thing because Voyager was not all that hopeful for most of the series. That's yeah, absolutely. Very good point. Yeah. And and it's good to see the excitement in the crew's faces at the end when Archer says that Starfleet thinks that we're ready to begin our mission. They're all they're all smiling and and really excited. They don't know what they're getting into, but they're still excited about what's in front of them. You know, one of the other things I really love about this episode are the scenes on Rigel. 
everything from the moment they land and some of the best early CGI work of Enterprise to, you know, when T'Pol and Tripp are, are trying to get a lead on, you know, uh, on the Suliban and the, I'm sorry, on the Klingons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tripp is yelling at that lady who, who he thinks is <laughs> suffocating her kid. Right. It's such a great turnabout because we don't expect that as the viewer. Mm-hmm. Find out she's weaning the kid, you know, to breathe, you know, that air. Right. And it's like, wow, that's really cool. The whole thing has a whole lot of, of depth to it. You know, even the scenes, you know, in the lower levels where Archer and Hoshi are, you know, get captured. I think it's a really good chunk of that episode. And we learn a lot about meeting aliens for the first time. Exactly. I was going to preface what you, or I would add to what you said that I liked the Rigel scenes that were inside the complex. Um, for all those reasons that you just mentioned, and you could even bring up, you know, we talked about the decontamination scene, the scene with the latex wearing ladies with the butterflies. I mean, that could be yeah. another thing that people may or may not have a problem with, but you get to see these different races here and there. I did not like the exterior scenes on Rigel, especially when they were trying to escape. Um, with the snow and everything. I didn't like the way that flowed. Rigel, I thought, from what we know from TOS, Rigel seemed to me more of a high-class place. And maybe that's just my own personal way that I took how they would talk about it. This seemed to be kind of a slummy, uh, kind of, you know, seedy location. And, for a, and you know, maybe there are different places on the planet that aren't like that. But this one kind of struck me as that. It's interesting you say that because uh, on my flight out to Vegas last week, I, I watched uh, season one of The Expanse from the Sci-Fi Channel. Mm-hmm. And the, the Rigel facility reminded me a lot of one of the the stations in The Expanse, which now, of course, is you know several years later. And I'm like, wow, it's uh, it's just as dark and gloomy and huh. gross as Rigel. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> nice. It made me think instantly of Broken Bow, which I thought was interesting. Cool. Um, I, I do have to say uh, one last minor criticism um, is the way Trip is written. <laughs> and, you know, I, don't get me wrong, I love Connor Trenier. I love, even though I'm, I'm not a big fan of Trip as a character, I do like what he brought to the role. I thought he brought a, a credibility and a believability to that character. But in this episode, Trip really seems like a hayseed, and I'm sorry, but he's the chief engineer of the first Warp 5 starship that's going out to meet aliens for the first time. He's not a dummy, and I think that there are times where they kind of make him sound a little dumb. Uh, Yeah, I think the whole, you know, is it Southern accent? Is that the best way to put it? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I totally, you totally can see that from what... uh, uh, from what he brings in that episode, I I do know that, and you as well as everybody else listening, that changes, of course, later. But you need to pull these people in. You're going to get that first impression on the first episode of a series. And I got to agree with you. I hadn't really given it much thought until I saw the show notes for tonight. I can't disagree with that, man. That's a good point. I never thought of that before. You know, and it really bugged me in the decontamination scene where he talks about, you know, the captain's daddy. Mm. I'm sorry, what 35-year-old man <laughs> uses the phrase daddy? Uh, come on. Can I say one other thing? Yeah, I, yeah. You know, we never get to see chef, really, unless you think Riker's the chef, which is – so I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but um, who? what chef, you know, serving dinner to the captain and another senior officer – there was nothing but the steak on that plate. Where's where's the rest of the stuff? <laughs> where's the baked potato? 
exactly. Uh, oh my goodness! I'm amazed that they serve steak. Um, quite frankly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. because um, how they, they had to use it before it went bad, right? And you know, yeah. when did they start using cubes like they did on the Enterprise One Seven Hundred One? Well, and honestly, when are they gonna? Where are they gonna restock? Yeah, uh, yeah. Good point. Good point. It's, it's great that they've got this food store, but how often do they have to go back to Earth? Because it's not like they can just stop at the nearest Starbase. Oh, wait. All right. <laughs> I know one more thing I wanted to bring up. Yeah, go ahead. The transporter. I love what they oh, did yeah. in this episode. Um, I love the fear that they were that they seemed to have at the beginning when they were shipping supplies in and beaming them up. Very good special effect of the transporter on Enterprise. I like that a lot. But at the end of the episode, when they have to rescue Archer and they beam him in, he looks like he is about to pass out from fear that they just put him through that. And the look on his face when he's grabbing his chest to make sure that he's all there is a perfect scene from Scott Bakula. I loved what they did with that scene and the fear of the transporter because it is so new in that technology. I have to agree with you 100%. Every time I watch that scene, I think Bakula, Bakula gives the perfect reaction shot. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the best reaction shots in all of Star Trek. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because there are a lot of people when they cite their lack of love for Enterprise talk about the fact they think Bakula is kind of wooden. And this episode, you know, dev- demonstrates without a doubt that he is not. Right. You know, he has to, he's projecting a certain image as the captain. And I, I think there are times when Archer is as unsure of things as maybe some of the other crew. And perhaps that lends to what they perceive as his wooden, you know, quality. But. Mm-hmm. He nailed that scene. Honestly, Bakula nails the whole episode from start to finish. You know, you can tell that he gets the character from day one. You can tell that he is inhabiting it, you know, as if he'd been playing it for a year already. And I think that that's probably the strongest part about this episode. He is such a strong series lead and top of the call sheet guy that I think it raised everybody else's game. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Very Excuse me. Very well said. Uh, he made he made Broken Bow as as four star as as I think we both agree that it is. Now well, uh, that doesn't take away from anybody else. I personally think Billingsley was great. I love the idea as we talked about a few minutes ago. Um, this is early in Starfleet. You don't have all the technologies you want, so you have this doctor who's dealt with other races he's got creatures in cages and slimy eels that are going to help cauterize wounds i loved that idea of what the character of flocks brought to sickbay and enterprise i have to agree with you 100 i think that it's great that there was an an alien regular that wasn't necessarily the character trying to be human optimism captain <laughs> i'm just gonna do that <laughs> You know, you figure we had Spock and TOS, you know, you had a data in next gen, you know, you had Odo in DS9, you mm-hmm. had Seven in Voyager. Yeah, here is, you know, there's two aliens front and center in the regular cast of, of Enterprise, and neither of them are wishing that they were more human or dealing with an aspect of their humanity. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was incredibly refreshing. Yep, I did as well. Very well said. Well, Dan, one thing is for sure, you and I have a lot of love for Broken Bow. You know, there are some minor things, some wish, things we wish they had done differently, but all in all, um, if this is on, I'll watch it every single time. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, I find myself um, thinking that about 
a lot of Enterprise. We talk about how sometimes some of the other series take a couple of seasons to really take off, and and I'm not a big fan of season one or two of TNG or Voyager, but even though they weren't awesome, the stories in Enterprise, all the way through, there are really no horrendously terrible ones that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I have to agree with you right off the uh, right off the bat. I mean, we can think of terrible episodes in in the original series. We can think of some some real stinkers in in TNG, DS Nine, yeah, but um, I, I don't think that you know there are episodes that make me have that same reaction as far as Enterprise goes. Yeah, maybe we gave it a shorter or a longer leash because it was supposed to be bridging the the continuity between this era and the original series. I don't know. Right. Or maybe it was just written a little better. I'm yeah. not really sure. Yeah. Well, Dan, one of the things that is absolutely better is our podcast. And that's because of the addition of the music of our friends of the band five year mission. They, it's because of them that we have this amazing sound and we can't thank them enough. They are every piece of music that people hear on Trek geeks and uh, we love them. We hope everybody heads out to fiveyearmission.net, downloads all their albums like somebody just did this week. I saw in that. Fact, <laughs> in fact, it's we're going to talk about that person in just a second uh, with our iTunes subscribe and review campaign. But yet I digress. Um, head on out to fiveyearmission.net, you know, learn all their stuff, and please uh, get a hold of Creation and, and tell them that it's just not Star Trek Las Vegas without Five Year Mission. Let's uh, let's do what we can. Let's send the message we need to send. Get them back as house band and show them we love Five Year Mission, Dan. I think we need to like get a mob together to like go and talk to Creation, like just a whole gaggle of people. You're you know? thinking like tor- torches and pitchforks. <laughs> Know, torches and pitchforks, but signs that say, you know, FYM or 5YM, all this, that, and the other thing. That we need a mob. But speaking of mobs, Bill. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, who doesn't love a good mob story, right? Unquestionably. Right. Right. And that's what I thought. You know, I watched this episode. It's got everything, Bill. It's got everything. It's got humor. It's got suspense. It's got zoot suits. And it's got Mel from Alice. It's got everything. Check. Right. Anyway, anyway, you know what? Check it out, pal. You're gonna love it. It's a piece of the Farkshin. Check it out. It's awesome. <laughs> a piece of the Farkshin. I, <laughs> I waited all that time for that. Hey, what can that's, I say? That's because you can't really call it a piece of the written house shin. <laughs> I'm gonna start on some micisms pretty soon. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's, he he needs some love too. I've learned today. So, we need, they all need love, because and they, we love that. All need love. We do. And again, if everybody heads out to fiveyearmission.net, download an album or two or four. Um, please, let's uh, let's make this happen. Dan, speaking of things that happened, uh, we are remiss in, in the fact that we haven't announced the latest winner of our iTunes subscribe and review campaign. We so, haven't. No, we well, haven't. You're not doing a great job producing the show, then, are you? I know. I, I really suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, the winner of last quarter's $25 Amazon.com gift card is iTunes user Delwina. I hope I said that correctly. She also is the same person that went out and bought a whole bunch of five-year mission music and told us on Facebook. So I think that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, if so, I would love to read what she said about the Trek Geeks podcast. Uh, please do. Yeah, she headlined it with, This podcast saved my sanity, which I find quite funny because you drive me insane. But uh, anyway, her review, Delwina, uh, with all of the bonkers stuff going on in this country right now, I have made a life decision. Goodbye to NPR. 
and to all of your bad, disturbing news. Hello to Star Trek, only Star Trek, all of the time. And the cornerstone of my new Star Trek-centric life? Well, Trek geeks, of course, but please, please, not too much more Richard Hatch. (laughs) I think we can guarantee that won't be the case. Um, I think I agree with you. I don't see that happening again for reasons we'll talk about next week. Dan, speaking of next week... Well, actually, before we get to that, um, this uh, our last quarter of the iTunes subscribe and review campaign rolls on. You can head out to trekgeeks.com slash iTunes for more information. You could win a $25 Amazon.com gift card, just as Delawina has done this week. I'm going to get right out there. Uh, yes, I don't think you should do that. Dan, okay. next week, as we just teased, we've got a special episode to talk about one of the latest developments in the lawsuit <laughs> that was just settled. Yes, um, it's big enough that we're going to dedicate a whole episode. Uh, as we mentioned earlier during the news segment, the lawsuit between CBS and Paramount and Axanar was settled last week. Uh, there is a lot to dissect. There's a lot to discuss and opine on. So we figured we should bring in the big guns for a special discussion uh, on this topic. So next week, we are going to be joined by Carlos Pedraza, the man behind Axamonitor, Uh, the website which kept us all up to date on the lawsuit since it started over a year ago. And I got to tell you, Bill, I cannot wait to talk to Carlos about this. Carlos is such a great guy. He's such a unique background, both as a journalist and as somebody who has worked in fan films. So I think that he brings a a credibility and a sincerity to this that that very few people could bring. But that's next week on Trek Geeks. Uh, We hope you'll all join us. Of course, for more great Star Trek discussion, we hope you'll check out our friends at the Tricorder Transmissions online at thetricordertransmissions.com. You know, they've got a variety of podcasts, certainly something that will uh, will interest every Star Trek fan. Among our favorites, Shore Leave, Atavacron. They've been talking a lot about the Gold Key comics, which honestly, Dan, has made me want to go back and read all of the Gold Key comics. You can frankly. read? Um, well, there's a lot of pictures and colors, and that's really what I key in on. Oh, okay. I'll do it, too. Okay. And, of course, for all the latest news on everything Star Trek, please visit our great friends at treknews.net. Online at treknews.net. For now, this has been episode 90 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper. And we can't be afraid of the coconuts, Ensign. Slow and steady. Slow like you, right? I make things go. It's been so long. It's only been been two weeks. I know, I miss you. (laughs) No, I don't. I really don't. You didn't miss me for a second. Not for one second. Nope. If you had missed me, that would have been news. (laughs) Yeah, it would have. Because that, no, just don't, I didn't. It could be another month and I'd be like, oh, geez, that's it. Yeah, (laughs) you would have have asked about my wife first and said, is Kelly okay? (laughs) That's right. No, I did. I did miss you. How's uh, and you had a good trip? 
We had a great trip, Vegas. My wife's uh, tattoo came out amazing. Very nice. Very nice. It's a big celebration week up here in this part of the country, isn't it? Uh, a little bit. You know, it's so nice because you know how I, how much of a rabid fan I am. It's so nice to be able to relax and watch a game that you still have a, a horse in. Normally, I'm freaking out every play, and I'm like, every single play, I'm dissecting whether they should have, you know, done zone or man to man or blah 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 blah. After the first half, I just knew that it was going to be great, and I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Wow, that's that's awesome. I actually was kind of nail-biting the Falcons game because I also like the Falcons. <laughs> yep. You know, I, my wife and I are in Atlanta at least once a year, usually sometimes more. But yeah, we wound up watching a lot of Falcons games every year. Falconry. Um, fa- yes, we're into falconry. <laughs> and uh, it was nice to see them make the Super Bowl. It's just a shame they're going to be the next victim. Yes, I have to agree. I, I got to give the edge to New England with, uh, with their defense. They both have great offenses, but I think uh, New England's defense is far superior to Atlanta's, so... So I have to tell you, I, uh, I thought of you yesterday. Oh, that's sweet. I know, and it, I was not in the bathroom. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> so I'm driving home. And um, you know how, like, on the podcast, you know, you, you were singing that clip from the song uh, Love is Like Oxygen? You were telling yes. me about that radio station in Portland, Maine? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that song was on my satellite radio. And so I'm singing, and all I can think of is you doing that really bad impersonation of that song. And I'm trying to do it the way you do it, and I can't. I think that's a compliment. Uh, Okay, let's go with that. So the song after that... Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so... it's a song I really like, but I think everybody you know from our era likes the song, but nobody knows the words. Okay. This song is 40 years old this year. I looked it up. It's Lido Shuffle by Boz Skaggs. Oh, my God. I haven't heard that you, in about 40 years. You know the one I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Lido. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. yeah. What's, that, what's the next line? Uh... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there are lyrics to this song, because I looked them up, and I was listening to the song today, and reading the lyrics, I'm like, really? That's what he says? All right. I got I to gotta hear it now. Um, let me see. Hold on. Well, I know. I'm going to affect a demonstration for oh, you. Oh, okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Because my theory is, you can sing gibberish to this song, <laughs> and it sounds just like Boz Skaggs. <laughs> it's okay. All are right. you ready? I'm ready. Let's hear are it. You ready? Okay, hold on. One second. Lido. He's from the swamp. He's from the foe. If we both let go, say, whoa, whoa, Lido. Whoa. One last time, Jabba Jibbe. One last swill. Sabaduba. One more. See? (laughs) One more cry for your kitty. (laughs) (laughs) Am I wrong? No. That was awesome. (laughs) I can't even breathe. So I'm driving down. I'm driving up Route 3 yesterday, heading home from work. And I'm singing along the gibberish to the whole song. 
And I'm thinking, yeah, this sounds pretty good. I can't wait to hear what Drozen says about this one. <laughs> so there wow. you have it. And, you know, it's it's obviously not the whole song. You know, we um, but oh, uh, God. I'm convinced that they made up the lyrics after the fact because Boz Skaggs was just he was caterwauling <laughs> into a microphone. God, that's great. One more time. Let's do it. I'm going to try it. No, I want to try it now. All right. Hold on. That's pretty good. Yeah, that anybody can do it. Okay, all right, everybody, send your audio to Bill at TrekGeeks.com. No, 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 no. No, use SpeakPipe.com. Yes. Slash TrekGeeks. Wow. And do it that way. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> now I'm gonna have that song in my head all freaking night. You're welcome, and that's okay. <laughs> Hey, so I uh, I, ch- I changed the contact information a little bit. I saw that. You don't think I read ahead of time? I know you don't. Well, I do. Yeah, when did you read it? Like two minutes before I chatted you up? That's ahead of time, mister. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are right, you ready to do this? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> One last try for it. Okay. Cause I got faith. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> right, shut up. Okay. <laughs>